You know, I go to Starbucks. I spend a lot of time in Starbucks. And they play Christmas carols over the radio at Starbucks. And, and sometimes I'll hear them play Christmas carols like, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And I go, man, does Starbucks know what they're letting go on the radio here? Like, are they really thinking about the words that are, that are coming through? Because it's talking about Jesus being king. We hear songs like in Walmart and in different stores about Jesus being king. Like, we, we say the words, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. These are words that we use, and I think it's, it's super interesting that we do that because I really wonder, do we understand, do we actually hear, do we grasp what it is that we're saying when we say those words? You know, because the reason we celebrate Christmas, Christmas is celebrated today because of a core religious belief held by Christians throughout history, and that belief is this, Jesus is king. That's the belief that we hold. That's the reason we celebrate Christmas today. It's because of this core religious belief that Christians hold. And, and so when we get to Christmas, and for all of the marketing that has produced Christmas for us and all of the things that it has turned into, we actually have to acknowledge the fact that we can't get to Christmas and, and our celebrations and our gift giving and, and our families and all of this stuff, we can't get to this celebration without this core religious belief being there, which is Jesus is king. And my concern is that we can't hear those words. We can't become aware of the fact that this is the core message of Christmas and not do something with the words. Like we actually have to do something with these words. So, so when we acknowledge that this is the foundational message of Christmas, I think that there are a series of questions that should arise. Like when we actually confront the words, Jesus is king, I think that should create a series of questions for us. And so this morning, what we're really gonna do is we're gonna walk through three questions. And those, uh, those three questions, they're gonna kinda take us through this journey of, okay, what if Jesus is king? So we're looking at Luke chapters one and two. And the first question I think that's gonna arise is this, as we encounter the words, Jesus is king, the first question that's gonna arise is this, is it true. Is it true? So, um, so there are a number of potential categories that we could throw the Christmas story into. Uh, in fact, there are a number of people who throw the Christmas story into these categories. The first category is this. Uh, you could throw it into the category of an entirely fabricated feel-good mythology. So you could call the Christmas stories, we're asking, is it true? You could call it an entirely fabricated feel-good mythology. Uh, and, and the people who put it in this category, this is the kind of thing that they say. They say, you know, people desiring, who were desiring to start a religion, they took some ideas, and they developed them into a mythology, a story. And, and then they told people in this mythology, they told them stories about heaven and hell and peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And then a few years later, the Roman Empire, they picked up this mythology and they used it to manipulate a bunch of people. That's what some people say about the Christmas story. That's one category that they throw it into, so that's a potential category. The second potential category, it is an actual event so some people believe it's an actual event, but, but some of the event elements are fabricated. So fabricated fantastical or fantasy elements. So you get things in the Christmas story, like a virgin birth. You get a magic star that leads some people called magi to a magic child that they find in a manger. You get angels appearing in the sky and telling shepherds some story about a child who has been born. None of these elements are things that we encounter in everyday life, 
right? Just as like we're walking through, these are not things that we typically see. And so one of the categories that people throw this into is they say, you know what? It might actually be an event, but some of these fantasy, fantastical elements, they're kind of fabricated. So, so some of the elements are fabricated. So those are two options. The, the whole thing's fabricated, some of the elements are fabricated, or the third option is that it is just an entirely true story. It is an entirely true story. So newsflash, you're in church, and we happen to believe that this is the option. That's, that's the most likely option. So, uh, so we happen to favor this category. I'd like to submit to you, though, that this belief, it's not just a belief of convenience for us because it's some thing that we hold to, but, but I'd actually like to submit to you that the fact that this is an entirely true story is the most reasonable and likely explanation for why we have the Christmas story today. So there, there are three reasons that make the case for that, and I, we're gonna observe them in the book of Luke. So Luke chapter one, verse one says this. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So I'm gonna submit to you three reasons that make the case for this being a true story. The first reason is this. It reads more like a news report than a mythology. It reads more like a news report than a mythology. So, so you know what? Mythologies, they don't start like this. In fact, they typically start with fantastic claims about the hero of the story. They rarely, if ever, start with somebody saying, you know what? I'm just trying to collect a bunch of data to compile a story for you. That's not how they typically start. And then we see how he actually, this writer, Luke, went about compiling the narrative. Verse two, it says this. It says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He's getting ready to tell the Christmas story, but before he tells the Christmas story, he's saying to them, I'm going all the way back to the beginning, the source, the people who walked with Jesus, the people who sat with Jesus, and I'm hearing what they have to say. I wanna hear what they have to say because they were the closest. So just as those eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, they've delivered these words to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely. I'm really digging into this situation. I'm really trying to observe what's going on. I'm really trying to collect all the data in order to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is likely a guy who paid for Luke to do this, to go and collect all of this data. And then verse four says, that you may have certainty. That you may not be confused about the reality of the events that happened. So Luke, he's reporting, what he's doing, he's reporting on interviews and interactions that he had with people who were the closest with Jesus. And then I just want to look at one more thing. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, it says, in the days of Herod. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Joseph went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David. You know what Luke is doing with all of this information? He's trying to place the events in their historical place and time, which means he wants the other people, other Roman readers to know these events actually fit a timeline and a place in the Roman world. So what's clear here is that it's not Luke's intention to write a myth. His desire is actually to express his findings based on multiple interviews with multiple people connected to these historical timestamps, what he appears to be trying to do is to give us an accurate history of things that happened, which means one of three things. Number one, he's lying to us. 
Like if, if what he's writing is a history, he could just be lying about that history. Number two, the people that he interviewed are lying about the things that they're giving him. Or number three, everybody's telling the truth. Okay, so second reason I believe this is the most reasonable explanation for the Christmas story. It is true. Uh, given the event's implications, we should expect the supernatural. Given the event's implications, we should expect the, new, the supernatural. So here's everything that happened in the first two chapters of Luke. An angel took a man's speech away and then gave it back to him later. Uh, a woman had a baby past childbearing age. Angels, they talked to so many people in these first two chapters. And then, you know, Mary, the virgin, had a baby. And then angels appear to shepherds. You know what? I'd like to submit to you these supernatural happenings. They don't discredit the reality of the events. In fact, I would argue that they reinforce the reality of the events. Because think about what we're saying with the Christmas story. The God of the universe took on flesh and became human. The God who created everything became human like us so that he could be with us. So can I be real honest? when that event takes place, I'm gonna expect to see some pretty crazy stuff because I, would, I need to know that I'm gonna see things that I typically wouldn't see to prove to me that this guy is who he says he is. So then what Luke does is he just faithfully records these events that people told him about for us because he knows that the miracles, the, the events, the wonders, they all confirm that the child in the manger is in fact God in the flesh. Third reason why well, I think it being true is the most reasonable explanation for the story. Few are willing to die for something they know is fabricated. So, so it's not out of the question that Luke, he would have interacted with nearly 50 people in order to compile this narrative. Different individuals and sources to account for the things that Jesus said and did. Uh, and, and then you have many other people that he talked to that also wrote other pieces of the New Testament, 27 books, which means that in the production of the New Testament, as we have it, there are likely over 50 people involved in this process, and all of them tell one singular story, and that is this, Jesus is king. They collectively tell this one story, and what becomes apparent in their writing of the New Testament is that every single one of them is willing to stake their lives and their livelihood on this thing that they believe. They're willing to give everything for it. So you know what? Like, you, you might get one person to die for a lie that they made up. You might even get two or three people to die for a lie that they made up. But to get nearly 50 people to stake the entirety of their lives on, on things that they saw, things that they personally witnessed. In fact, some of them even died for these things that they personally witnessed. This is an unprecedented response. You don't get nearly 50 people to die for a lie. But it's the most plausible explanation for why we have the Christmas story today because all of them are telling the truth. That's the most plausible explanation. Okay, so is it true? Um, I believe, absolutely, I believe that it is. Next question that's gonna come up is this. If you're tracking with me, if you're tracking with me that it's true, the next question is what kind of king is he? Okay, so, so um, you might be with me that it's true, and if you are, 
uh, you're probably inclined to ask things like, okay, so if it's true, why should I trust him? Why should I follow him? You know, Jesus might be important, but what sets Jesus apart in his importance? Why is he so special? And so we actually see the answer in, in the scripture passage that Gavin read for us this morning. After the angel appears, he gives a message to the shepherds, and this is what he says, chapter two, verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So you know, the Bible arrives to us, it it arrives to us translated from another language. And uh, that word joy and that other language is actually connected to a number of different words which mean things like grace and blessing and gift. All of those words, they collectively carry a similar meaning. So, so instead of trying to wrap our minds about, well, what does it mean that this announcement is a joyful announcement? Uh, I'd like to make it really simple. So what kind of king is he? Well, his arrival is an amazing gift. His arrival is an amazing gift. So, so you know, we have this tradition of gift giving at Christmas. I just want to talk about Santa for, for a second. Uh, the, uh, the figure of Santa, we have the figure of Santa today because of this guy back in the fourth century named St. Nicholas. And this guy named St. Nicholas, you know what he did? He was inspired to give generously to poor and homeless kids and care for them because of the gift he received in Jesus because of the gift he received with Jesus. This is where our tradition of gift giving comes from. It goes all the way back to that very first amazing gift. It's rooted in that gift. So what kind of king is he? Well, apparently his arrival is an amazing gift. At the end of verse 10, it says this. It says that this gift is for all the people. So so you know what? Rulers, they look out for their own people. Kings, they typically look out for their own people. Presidents, they build walls to protect their countries. Prime ministers tighten immigration policies to make sure that their people are taken care of because leaders, they feel a personal responsibility for their people. But this king, he's not just a king for a certain group of people. He's not just a king for Jewish people. He's not just a king for rich people. He's not just a king for those who have been religiously devout their whole life. He's not just a king for those who follow a certain set of rules, but what kind of king is he? His leadership is open to anyone. His leadership is open to anyone. So people of different skin colors, different nationalities, who speak different languages. What's the the song? Uh, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. His leadership is available to any person, regardless of your current cultural identity, regardless of how much money you make, regardless of how much information you have in your head, regardless of what your background is, what your history is. His leadership is open to anyone. This gift is for all the people. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it's interesting that he's called Savior. The implication is that there are a certain group of people who need some kind of saving. So as you look through the story of Scripture, what you see, you see a remarkable story about a God who created the entire universe and he created people and he loves people. But people, you also see in the story, people consistently respond to that love by giving their devotion and their allegiance to created things rather than to their creator. 
That's the consistent story you see. So, so God actually, he prescribes a certain way of living, a certain way of doing things. And if I just think about myself, like me multiple times, you know what I've told God? I've, I've said, God, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm gonna do it my way. I'm gonna choose to walk my own path. You might have a certain way of doing things, but I think I've got it. I'm good. And the Bible uses words like this to describe that attitude. It calls it like sin and rebellion. Those are the words the Bible uses. And as a result, what we understand is that as a result of our choice to engage this way, we have incurred a debt. So, so justice actually must be executed for this debt. And this is why death exists. This is why God said at the very beginning, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. This is the words that he used. It's the price that we owe. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So then when the Bible calls Jesus a savior. It's in part referencing the fact that Jesus came to die so that he might pay the debt for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. So what kind of king is he? Well, you need saving and he offers salvation. You need saving and he offers salvation. Can I tell you how he pays the debt? how he offers this salvation, this child, God made flesh, he would actually live a perfect life and he would love people really, really well and then he would die at the hands of people who hated him. That's what would happen. And then this Jesus who died, you know, uh, he would sacrifice himself. He would allow God's justice to be executed on him so that everybody who follows him could actually be at peace with God. That they could actually be right with God. And so this Jesus who died, he would rise from death to prove to us that he actually has the power to be a savior. And so you know what? You need saving. What kind of king is he? He's a king that offers salvation. Then look at the end of, of verse 11. It says, Christ the Lord. Okay, I'm gonna ask you to participate. Raise your hand if after this week you are tired of political games. It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you sit on, every single person is tired of the political games that we have been playing, right? So whatever side, you know, the heat and viciousness being thrown across party lines, we could all, you know, agree on this thing for different reasons, our government is broken. Our government is broken, you know? Uh, so, so part of the reason this announcement is good news is because the king is called Christ the Lord. The title Christ is actually another word for Messiah, and I want to tell you about who the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was prophesied in Scripture to be a perfect ruler. The Scripture said things like, he'll always make the decision that is perfectly right and perfectly just. He will always be gracious and compassionate. He will bring justice against those who do injustice. He will rule in peace. And so what kind of king is he? Well, he's a better leader for you than fill in the blank. Whatever leader you're currently frustrated with, whatever leader just is not matching the standard for what you think a leader should be, guess what? He is a better leader. So you know what? Party leaders, they fall short. Presidents fail. Kings oppress people. Bosses, they operate with double standards. Governors, especially if you live in Illinois, break the law, right? All of this happens, but Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better ruler. And under Jesus' lead, what we're actually told is that one day, the world will be rightly ordered. Amen. That it will actually be a just society. Verse 12. This will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So you know what? So for a guy who the angels declare to be king, I have to be honest, this is a pretty underwhelming presentation. So, so you know, uh, when a baby is born to the royal family in England, do you know what happens? Like, okay, so there are a series of things that happen. First of all, there's a town crier. Still, today, to this day, there's a town crier. With social media and all the stuff that we have, there's a town crier who walks around London announcing that a baby has been born. Then uh, the Tower of London does a 62-gun salute when the baby is born. Another park, at another park in London, they fire off 41 guns. And then major landmarks, they post massive announcements on their digital bulletin boards telling you what the gender of the baby is, telling you who, that the baby has been born. Uh, a, a very nice, very expensive blanket is bought for the baby to be wrapped in. And then the child, when the child gets baptized, they get baptized in this really incredible, ornate, golden bowl. And in, in our story, this baby, he's not just like king for one country, but the Bible says he's king for all the people. So you know what? I have some pretty high expectations of what this king, how this king might be presented, but Jesus apparently isn't presented with all the fanfare. Instead, he intentionally presents himself in very unassuming ways. So you know what? This is like a, like a millionaire who dresses just like everyone else. So uh, you, you wouldn't know that they have the money that they do. You wouldn't know that this person wields the power that they do for others. You wouldn't know it by seeing them because they dress just like everyone else because you know what they want. They want to be able to actually have like a relationship with people. They want to be able to actually like interact with people. So you know, in order to figure out how much that person is worth, you have to have a meaningful encounter with them. You actually have to, to talk to them, to, to engage with them. So you know what, people who want accolades, they lead with their stuff. People who uh, want, uh, want to be celebrated, they lead with their stuff, they lead with their status, they lead with their power, but, but people who want relationship lead with meekness and humility. So, so what kind of king is he? He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. So Jesus, he doesn't lead with all the glory and the glamour because he wants a relationship. He leads with his heart. He doesn't lead with his stuff. He leads with meekness and humility because he actually wants a relationship with people. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a good king. He laid down his life to save his people so that he might have a relationship with us. Okay, so, so that's, there's one more question. If you're tracking with me, it's true that Jesus is king. And not only that, but that he is a really good king. The last question is this. So what? How do I respond? So to hear a message like Jesus is king, to hear the gravity that it carries, it actually requires us to do something with it. The message itself necessitates a response, and, and actually to not do something with it is to make a decision to do something with it, right? Because it carries so much weight. So my question for you this morning is where are you at with the king? Because wherever you're at with the king will determine the kind of response that you might have. So uh, if you're faithfully following the king, are you already faithfully following the king? I wanna suggest a response to you. I'd encourage you this morning to respond like Mary. So in chapter two, verse 19, this is what it says about Mary. It says, Mary, she treasured, she treasured up all these things 
pondering them in her heart. She treasured up every single one of them. Think of everything that was thrust on Mary. An unwed pregnancy. Uh, The massive weight of responsibility for caring for somebody called the Messiah. But all the way along, she has an attitude of gratefulness, of thankfulness. They remind us multiple times of, of just Mary's disposition to these things. That she was grateful. So that she took every opportunity to treasure these things. And so I'd encourage you, if you're faithfully following the king this morning, respond like Mary. Take every opportunity to treasure this amazing gift. Take every opportunity to treasure this amazing gift. You know what? My, my best, my most memorable Christmases, they're not determined by the gifts that I received. They're, they're not determined by kind of the, the things that I did at that time. My most, my best, me- most memorable Christmases, I had them because, because of the disposition of my heart, because I was just simply so grateful for all the gifts that God has given me, not the least of which is the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus. So, so take every opportunity to treasure the amazing gift. So, so uh, maybe you're a Christian who has strayed. Are you a Christian who has strayed? I want to encourage you this morning to respond like the shepherds. So I want to ask you the question, if you're a Christian who has strayed, do you really believe that these things are true? Like, do you actually believe it? Is Jesus actually your king, or is he like just fire insurance for you? Do you believe it enough to do something about it with your life. You know, when the angels came, the the shepherds, they didn't immediately celebrate. They didn't immediately praise. You know, all of these angels show up, they all say glory to God in the highest, and and peace, and goodwill, and all this stuff. They say all this stuff, and the angels, they don't really respond. They just kind of go to see if it's true. They go to see if it's true. So, so in, in, in verse 16, this is what it says. It says, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So when they discovered that they actually like weren't crazy for the things that they saw, that they weren't delusional, when they discovered that these things are actually true, they started glorifying and praising God. They ex- started exclaiming how great God is. And so, so if you're a Christian this morning who has strayed and you actually believe these things, that you believe that they're true, I'd encourage you this morning, renew your commitment to glorify God with your life. Renew your commitment to glorify God with your life. You know what? Jesus is alive, and he is a really, really good king. He is a savior, and he loves you, so renew your commitment to glorify God. Uh, Maybe you haven't met Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't met Jesus yet. I just asked the question, have you met Jesus yet? You know what? There are two characters in this story, and we're actually going to look at the book of Matthew for this. It'll just be be short, but I want to I want to put in front of you two different characters and and people who hadn't met Jesus yet. And I just want to put in front of you the way that they responded. So you know the king, Herod, Herod the king, he hadn't met Jesus yet. But when news of a king being born came on the scene, he had a particular response. So in in Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 16 kind of tell us the whole story. I just want to look at verses 3 and 16. Verse 3 says this, when Herod the king heard this, he 
he was troubled. The news of this king being born, it was a threat to him. He felt uh, just the, the, the current order of things slipping away from him. And so in verse 16, this is what he decided to do. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. This was Herod's decision. Herod decided that he was going to reject Jesus. Now, uh, in the story, what, what we hear is that an angel actually appears to Mary and Joseph and says, Herod is going to do this. You need to flee. And so they fled to Egypt. But Herod's decision here was to reject Jesus. So if you haven't met Jesus yet, you actually could respond like Herod. You could decide to reject him. You could decide to reject him or in the same story, we read about wise men. There were wise men that came from the east. Very likely, we understand that they were pagans. They had no context for God. They had no context for the things of God. They were into astrology. They liked to read the stars to understand how the world worked. And a, and a star appeared in the sky. With very little context for God or the things of God, we read this story. So Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11 says this. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so in verse 11, going into the house, these people who have no context for God, for the things of God, they go into the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. So maybe you're like these wise men. Maybe you're ready to receive that amazing gift of salvation, that gift of peace with God, that gift of a relationship with the king. I'd encourage you this morning to respond like these wise men did. Decide to worship him alone. Decide to worship him alone. You know what? Jesus is king. And that's a reality that we all have to do something with. So this morning, I'm actually thankful to be in a place where, where this morning, to collectively, we're gonna respond in worship and thankfulness to him. So in a moment, we're gonna sing the song Silent Night together. And I just wanna give you a bit of background on this song, Silent Night. Uh, this was a song, it was written in a German town uh, in about the 1800s, and, and typically the way that people worshiped uh, in German churches is that they, they would have the organ, they had the big organ. Uh, this, this is how they would uh, sing their songs to, to God, but uh, in this particular church, in this particular German town, the organ had broken down on Christmas. It was not operating on Christmas, and, and there was this guy who was in charge of music. He said, you know, we can't have Christmas without music to help us respond. And so, so one day he worked with a poet, and one day on Christmas Eve he worked with a poet and threw together a song to be accompanied by guitar, and it's the song that we now know today as Silent Night. It's the song that has become known around the world as, as a song to help us celebrate and respond to the Christmas story. And his guiding thought in writing this song is this, we can't get to Christmas and not have a way to respond. We can't get to Christmas and not express our worship. So you know what, we do, what we're gonna do? Actually, in a moment, we're gonna sing that song together and we're gonna respond in worship. But first, I'd like to pray. So would you pray with me, please? Jesus, it is true that you are king. And this morning, 
I pray um, just for anybody encountering that reality for the first time. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them just how much you care, just how much you love them, just how willing you were to give yourself so that people might be saved. Lord, I thank you for this amazing gift. You gave yourself so that we could have a promise of life, so that we might not have to face death. Lord, so that we could look forward to a world where you will rule as king and the world will be rightly ordered. Lord, I thank you for all these things. Lord, for myself, I just ask that you would help me to treasure this amazing gift. Help me to respond. Help me to see you for who you are. Help all of us this morning to see you for who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.